Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax regulations to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is developed by a team of Pillar 2 tax experts from around the globe. PwC's Pillar 2 engine is currently available as a service and will be licensable in July of this year. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in PwC's Policy on Demand studio in Washington, D.C., where I'm thrilled to be joined by Wade Sutton. Wade is PwC's Washington National Tax Services International Tax Leader and former Deputy International Tax Counsel at U.S. Treasury Department. Wade! Welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, well, we've got a lot to cover with respect to some U.S. tax developments here in the last few few months. Um, but before we begin, um, you're a former adjunct professor of international tax at Georgetown University's Law Center. And I get this question a lot from students, um, and particularly those kind of thinking about what career path they want to get or go into. Why should someone studying law or accounting make a career in international tax? What's your elevator pitch, Wade? Yeah, well, that, that's an easy one. Um, right out of the gate, job security. Um, <laughs> you know, we, you hear all this talk on Capitol Hill about we need to simplify the tax code. Well, the trend for the last, I don't know, two, three decades has been the exact opposite direction. Tax is just getting every day more and more complex, and that creates a lot of need for tax practitioners because uh, it's so important to companies' bottom line. The other thing is, it's just really interesting work. I mean, you and I both went to law school and have colleagues or friends that went into other areas of law. I don't think they're as happy as tax lawyers. We get to solve interesting puzzles all day, so it's just fun. Totally agree. And that point on the simplification, I mean, that's just not unique to the U.S., right? I mean, if you look in Europe and what's happened with the EU, and now we've got Pillar 2 ahead of us, couldn't agree more. And there seems to be a trend that, that uh, policymakers never eliminate taxes. They just seem to add more yeah, and more yeah. on, right? Because there's always a concern. Well, if you take something away, somebody's going to do something. Um, the other point that, that I will make when I get the question, particularly as we think about technology and AI and how that's going to impact international tax and, and our business and something obviously I'm spending a lot of time on thinking about how we technology enable a number of our different services and platforms, both with for clients and, and internally. And I will tell you that I, you know, I would encourage, I encourage students that you know, international tax for all the, the reasons that you mentioned, but also learning about technology, understanding technology. And the question that I get as our global leader is, well, you know, is AI going to eliminate jobs? And are we even really going to need people in this area? And I will tell you from my experiences that I believe we're going to need more people, not less. And the more people we're going to need technicians to understand, tax technicians to understand and program the rules and validate results. And we're going to need people that have both technology skills and technical skills. And so the, the first point that you made, I just wanted to reiterate job security and then just, you know, what a, what a fun and interesting, I like the way you described it as puzzle solving yeah. has been very rewarding for me. And, you know, it's just constantly changing. And so uh, you, you do need to like to read, you do need to like to, to deal with changes to keep up with all that stuff. Or maybe you just like listening to the Cross-Border Tax Talks <laughs> podcast and we'll, uh, we'll get you up to date. All right, so let's start with some recent guidance in the U.S., and we're going to start with the foreign tax credit rules, um, and specifically notice 2023-80. Maybe we start with, Wade, broadly, what did that notice cover? 
Sure. So it really was three notices within one because it's three discrete topics that, that could have been addressed in separate notices. The first one is um, in the summer of 2023, we got a notice that basically deferred or suspended the application of the final 2021-2022 foreign tax credit regulations. As I'm sure you've covered on other cross-border uh, tax talks podcast, there's been a long saga with those regulations where you know they overshot and there were several iterative efforts to try and tailor the regulations um, yep. to, to not knock out some benign taxes that maybe should not have been covered. I think the government, after enough complaints or, or pointing out issues with the regulations, has said, you know what, we need to hit pause and just go back to the original regulations with some tweaks as we go back and fundamentally rethink this project. Um, the other piece, there was foreign tax credit guidance on the creditability of certain taxes under Pillar 2. And then there was a piece dealing with the interaction of the domestic uh, dual consolidated loss right. rules with Pillar 2. Okay. And so you had mentioned already, just can you remind listeners just what that, you kind of covered it briefly, but that temporary relief. And you're right, we've had a number of podcasts for free people that are interested. We get a lot deeper, but briefly just remind listeners what that temporary relief did. Sure. So, so without going too far into the details of what the final, I mean, they are currently still final effective regulations. They're just taxpayers have the election not to apply them. I have yet to find a taxpayer who's elected to apply continue them. to apply right. them. Um, but, you know, for a number of reasons, there were several, you know, we'll call them benign taxes that raised very significant questions. Like, you know, there were issues in Mexico with recovery of goodwill that, that made people question credibility. Or Brazil was a big issue, their corporate income tax, or even services withholding taxes. And then, you know, more recently, people are flagging issues with individuals that were working abroad. And, and I think all of these complaints or, or just technical issues that were bubbling up resulted in a notice over the summer that deferred the application of, or gave the election to defer the application of the final rules uh, to tax years that basically ended um, on or after December, date in December 2023. Mm -hmm. Now, when that was issued, it was basically almost already expired, right? Because for a fiscal year taxpayer, you just got a few months of relief, right? And then 2024 was going to kick in. And for fiscal year taxpayers, you may have already had a taxable year that was not eligible for relief under the notice. So I think because we are not going to get new regulations dealing with foreign tax credit issues, the government decided to punt again the application of the, of the regulations. And I think they made a smart choice not to do the route they did under 987, which was you know, every year they elected to defer the final regulations with a notice. And so you'd, you'd be sort of standing on your toes waiting for the notice in December every year. Instead, they said, we're just going to defer it indefinitely. And so you don't have to apply the final regs. Now, there's some tweaks uh, that we're going to talk about but you don't have to apply the final regs until we issue new proposed regulations. And those will be effective, you know, for tax years ending on or after the date that those are issued in the federal register. Okay. All right. So maybe we move on to, you know, my, one of, one of my favorite topics, it might even be my favorite topic, which is pillar two. And we received some guidance with respect to the application of the U S foreign tax creditability rules for pillar two. And we're recording this in early 2024. We have 36 countries-ish that are going to be applying or have enacted these pillar, these pillar two rules. So we're in play um, and very relevant, obviously, for, for multinationals with respect to, you know, are the income inclusion rule, the UTPR, the under-tax profit rule, and the QDMTT 
What is uh, Treasury's view on the creditability of these Pillar 2 taxes? Yeah, and this is important because for a lot of taxpayers, Pillar 2 is live this year, right? They may have constituent entities that are already subject to a QDMTT or an IAR. Um, and the issue um, that people were running into is, you know, as a practical matter with the IAR, it is a minimum tax imposed on a constituent entity's profits, but it grants credits for CFC taxes that are imposed. And that can happen, for example, where an owner of the entity imposing the IAR is imposing a CFC tax. So that happens a lot in the U.S. multinational context, where you might have a U.S. parent that taxes a low-tax constituent entity under guilty or subpart F. Right. And there may also be a holding company in the middle of that chain that imposes an IAR. And so the, the IAR turns on the application of guilty, right? The more guilty that's imposed on the constituent entity's profits, the lower the IAR. But if you can credit the IAR, that reduces the guilty, and that uh, therefore should increase the amount of the IAR. And so that circular calculation raises a policy issue where if you didn't turn off the circle, eventually the IAR would swallow the entire tax base. So I think the U.S., you know, just from a revenue matter, didn't want that outcome, right? They didn't want to cede the entire U.S. tax base to the IAR. And I think the OECD model rules also say it's, it's anticipated that jurisdictions should not give a credit for the IAR. It's supposed to be the final tax right. that, that comes in. So what did the government do here? I guess is a gating point we should mention UTPR, uh, which not effective this year, but it's not covered in the notice. And so we can't infer that much about the UTPR here. But at least- I've got a guess on where Treasury is going to come out on that. But yeah, keep going. yeah. Um, but with respect to the IIR and the QDMTT, we did get guidance on creditability. And the important point about the IIR is it is um, a top-up tax that depends on the application of taxes at the owner level, right? So if you have that sort of circular tax, uh, then you cannot credit those taxes, right? But the mechanics of doing this, uh, of implementing this policy call are really interesting. Um, because what the notice says is it is potentially a foreign income tax at the CFC level or the partnership level. And so all of the mechanics that come with that, so you deduct the taxes at the CFC level and you suffer a Section 78 gross up, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you have a branch, um, you, you don't deduct the taxes under Section 275, right? Um, so that would be consistent with treating the tax as a foreign income tax. But then once you get to the U.S. owner level, it says, but you can't claim a credit if there's this recursive application of the tax. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's left a lot of people sort of scratching their heads um, because typically when that happens, there's a statutory basis for doing it. So, you know, you, for example, look at 901J. That happens to taxes that are paid in countries where we don't have diplomatic relations. Right. In fact, it allows for non-creditability for certain credits or for certain taxes by naughty countries is it, the term that is commonly it, used. Exactly. Um, and, and so, you know, those rules kind of spell out all of these mechanics. Um, here we're doing it by regulation. So I think there's been already a lot of talk about statutory authority, and the government's been very forthcoming, actually, about talking about the policy. You know, back in 1918, or I think it was actually 19 when we enacted the first foreign tax credit, Congress never could have thought about these types of taxes. So that argument is actually happening in public right now. Um, I think an interesting thing, though, is it, 
it will be rare that a taxpayer will actually get a benefit from challenging this notice. And that's sort of an interesting point that you have to model to figure out. But the issue is, if you do say that they're creditable taxes, okay, that's fine, but then you have limitations on your ability to credit under 904, you might have disallowance under 960D, you know, there's a 20% haircut. And so I, I think taxpayers need to sit down and model this before they decide whether or not there's a benefit to taking a position inconsistent with the notice. I think more often than not, they're gonna find out that there isn't. All right, and you're really specifically focusing on the IR. We're gonna come back to the, we're gonna to come to the QDMTT in a minute, but just wanna make sure, because we threw out a lot of code sections there. And Fair, yeah, yeah. For, for some of our non-US listeners. Generally, the way the US rules work, if there is taxes, creditable taxes that are imposed at the CFC level, the when when the distribution or subpart f or guilty whenever that that income kind of comes back to the u.s you mentioned the section 78 gross up and what that generally requires is taxpayers to effectively gross up that inclusion yeah, yeah. by the amount of foreign tax credits that or by the amount of foreign tax is by the amount of foreign taxes that are creditable and the point of that kind of simplistically when i used to teach this stuff is that it avoids companies for, from taxpayers from getting both a credit and a deduction. In other words, the, the, the taxes already created a reduction in the amount of the earnings and profits, and so the Section 78 kind of really trues up the amount that will then be creditable. Now, what's interesting, as you point out in this particular notice, is that the application of the rules require the Section 78 gross-up, just kind of the mechanics, so you have to effectively include that, that, those taxes additionally as income but then you don't get a credit for it. So yeah, effectively, that, taxpayers are denied both a credit and a deduction for any income inclusion rule taxes. Yeah, and the point of that doing that is to prevent this circulation. Right. Now, it's also worth mentioning that when you really get into the details, the circularity has not turned off. And this is probably too complex for the podcast, so I'll do the high-level version, which is if your inclusion percentage, which it, you know the amount of your tested income that ends up generating a guilty inclusion, if that's 100%, then you've turned off the circularity and, and you know, Treasury has accomplished its right. goal. When it's not 100%, which- it's Often the case. I think every taxpayer. Right. Uh, if you have any Q by or attested loss or you know, anything that would drive your inclusion percentage below 100%, you continue with the circularity. So, so we're not fully successful in turning off the circle. Um, the other point I, I should mention before we move on to the QDMTT is um, for minority shareholders, right, um, if you otherwise meet the, the qualification for a good foreign tax credit, then you can claim credits for an IAR. And the rationale here is, you know, say I own 10% of a CFC, um, it, you know, that can be like through a constituent, uh, a minority owner that is not a member of the M&E group, right, not a constituent entity. Well, those taxes that are imposed on that person under guilty are not taken into account as covered taxes. So there's no reason to cut off the circle and you can claim credits there. Same issue for individuals, um, right? If an individual owns a CFC, most of those people make elections under 962 in order to be able to claim credits. And they're getting a huge benefit out of this because they will be able to credit those IARs. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's move on to the QDMTT is I think a little bit more straightforward and that that is a, the, the qualified domestic minimum top-up tax, which 
you know, kind of reading the tea leaves, presumably many countries, if not most or all countries will adopt, ultimately adopt, if they're adopting the Pillar 2 rule, some type of qualified domestic minimum top-up tax to collect the top-up tax on itself, avoiding, you know, an income inclusion rule or UTPR. To remind listeners that QDMTT and the Pillar 2 ordering rules comes first. Yep. Um, and so how, what did U.S. Treasury say about QDMTTs imposed by a particular jurisdiction? Right. So, so it comes first. There is no credit for CFC taxes, right? Uh, and you could argue about the policy here, but, you know, essentially, if you're earning the income in that country, the OECD says they get first taxing rights. Right. And they don't, you know, to your point, you don't get a, the U.S. multinational, for example, doesn't get a credit for sub-F or guilty to reduce the QDMTT, which kind of turns off the circularity issue that you raise. Right. So for that reason, there's no reason policy-wise to disallow those credits. So again, assuming you otherwise meet the requirements for creditability, which, by the way, the government was very careful not to say anything about in this notice. It's certainly implied. Uh, you know, the examples that deal with QDMTTs describe them as income taxes. Anyway, assuming you meet those requirements, you can credit a QDMTT. Now, one thing to point out here, though, is there are some jurisdictions that are looking at non-qualifying domestic minimum taxes. And, you know, those are jurisdictions that are going to give credit for CFC level taxes. And I think the rationale, you know, these are typically jurisdictions that depend on investment, you know, mm -hmm. like financing, that sort of thing. Bermuda and Barbados are two that have kind of stepped out and, and yeah. presumably are going to be domestic minimum top up taxes and not QDMTTs. And that's just a couple examples. Yeah. And if that happens, then you're back into the recursiveness problem. And I think for that reason, those would not be creditable taxes. So I think jurisdictions are going to be looking at this guidance as they think about how to design their taxes um, in, in a way that's not going to prejudice uh, U.S. multinationals in particular to want to move elsewhere. All right, so let's move on to the, the third part of the notice. And I like the way you describe it as it's really kind of three notices kind of mushed together. Um, but it talks about the interaction of the dual consolidated loss rules and pillar two. So for our non-US listeners and maybe those not deep in the technical weeds, and this is a challenge here, Wayne, I know, I know. can you briefly explain what the US dual consolidated rules are and how they operate? Sure, so at a high level, the rules are trying, the DCL rules, we'll refer to them. Yep. They're trying to prevent you from deducting a single economic loss in two jurisdictions, right? And typically this would happen with, you know, inbound financing, right? So you might have a UK parent that borrowed through a dual resident company that was resident in the UK and the US. And so you might have interest expense that you could deduct on the UK group return and in the US consolidated group. And so to shut that off, the general aim of the rule is to force you to only deduct the, the expense in one jurisdiction. And you can typically do that uh, by making a domestic use election. And that's where you say, I'll deduct this loss in the US, but I cannot deduct it in a foreign jurisdiction. That's called a foreign use. Um, or you're just subject to what's called a, a domestic use limitation. So you can only deduct the interest in the US or the expense in the US against income earned in that entity. This applies to dual resident corps, it applies to disregarded entities, it applies to branches. So the issue with Pillar 2 is Pillar 2 is a jurisdictionally based computation, okay? And, and so if you think about that, that's like mandatory consolidation, right? Right. And that's creating a lot of questions about foreign use, right? I might have, say, a disregarded entity that's losing money for business reasons, and if that's owned by a U.S. corporation, it will deduct those losses, right? 
But for pillar two purposes, I might also be taking those losses into account when I'm doing my safe harbor calculation or even for purposes of the globe rules themselves, like for applying a QDMTT. And the fact that you're taking into account that economic loss twice in two places raises a domestic uh, foreign use concern. Yeah, historically, we would just look at the U.S. corporate tax and the foreign, the non-U.S. corporate tax. Now, all of a sudden, we have a third tax, right, which is pillar two. And the question is, well, does that count as a, a, a second or third potential use of that loss? Right. Um, and so what the government did here in this notice is what I'd call stopgap relief, right? Because they're very open about we're still thinking through this and working with the OECD to sort this issue out. But in the interim, what they did is they defined this category of DCLs called legacy DCLs. Um, and more or less, you know, for calendar year taxpayers, that's DCLs earned in 2023 or before. Mm -hmm. And for fiscal years, it, it's where your year starts before 24, more or less. And for that type of DCL, if that's later taken into account for purposes of the Pillar 2 tax, the notice says, don't worry about a foreign use. Right, we we will not ding you for that. Uh, so that's great, and and that solved a lot of issues with like a timing difference. So you yep. can imagine you might deduct something for U.S. tax purposes that might get deducted in twenty four or twenty five uh, for book purposes for pillar two. You don't need to worry about foreign use there. But now we're in twenty four, and the notice doesn't apply. And so I think the short version of this spiel is the government is not done here. Um, and I think we're likely to look for more administrative guidance from the OECD as a first salvo in solving this issue. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see how that shakes out. Yeah, and I just want to um, reiterate or amplify maybe one point. This is both an, an issue under the full model rule, potential issue, I should say, under the full model rules as well as the potentially the transitional safe harbors, right? Because those are different, potentially different bases. Um, that, that you're looking towards. So something for, for taxpayers to keep an eye on to, and hopefully we'll get some additional, some additional guidance sooner rather than later. Yeah. And I should mention, I'm not going to go too far into the weeds on it, but there was administrative guidance from the OECD in December that touched on this area. You know, there's these hybrid arrangement guidance, hybrid arbitrage arrangement guidance. Yep, which and, we covered with Steve Cohart on a recent yeah. podcast. And, and so there is this category, duplicate loss arrangements, that describes some of the DCLs we're talking about. You know, it's not perfectly coordinated with the DCL rule, so I think there's a lot more work to do there. Any particular challenges you're seeing when you're starting to apply some of these rules, Wade? Uh, let's see. Um, yeah. So I, I think on the DCL point, just there's not a lot of guidance. So the firms are all debating, you know, what's a foreign use, right? It, so you can imagine I might have my loss disallowed for safe harbor purposes because it's subject to this December administrative guidance from the OECD. But I still pass the safe harbor because I'm paying a lot of tax in that country and I'm over 15%. Is that a foreign use? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it is, by the way. But, you know, that, that's a live debate. And I think rather than the accounting firms trying to hash this out, it'd be nice just to have answers from the OECD or the U.S. government to, to resolve the controversy. Yeah, I mean, these are complex issues for sure. All right, so um, let's move on to notice 2024-16 involving previously taxed earnings and profits, or what we commonly refer to as PTAP. Um, and this was released at the end of 2023. Before we get into the notice, what is PTAP weighed and why is the outside tax basis in a CFC with PTAP important? Yeah, so 
Our current CFC regime operates somewhat like a pass-through regime, right? I mean, there are some limited exceptions where you're not taxed on certain types of income, but in general, if the CFC earns income, it's taxed at the U.S. shareholder level. And so for that reason, once you've already been taxed on income, you shouldn't be taxed on it again when it's distributed to you. And you should get basis credit, right, in your CFC stock so that if you later disposed of the stock, you know, you don't have gain that's effectively replicating a second tax on the earnings you're already taxed on. So to do that, we have these uh, basis rules under Section 961, you know, that in general increase stock basis to the extent you've been taxed on earnings. Either guilty or subpart F. Right. And then, you know, to the, if you distribute the earnings, you're not taxed a second time under Section 959, and you reduce your basis to account for the fact that you've reduced the value of the CFC. We have similar rules in the consolidated return space mm -hmm. and the partnership rules for S-Corps. And I think, you know, conceptually, that's what's going on. Now, the notice dealt with a special type of 961C, uh, 961 basis, which is 961C basis. So what is that? Um, in general, you get your basis increase at the top tier CFC that you own directly. So the U.S. shareholder gets mm -hmm. the basis in that first tier CFC, even if the the inclusion relates to a lower tier entity. Right. So what do you? Yeah. What do you do if the subpart F inclusion was attributable to a second or lower tier CFC? Well, 961C says we're also going to make basis adjustments at that level, the lower um, levels. But it's for a limited purpose, right? It's only for purposes of determining your subpart F inclusion or guilty. So the issue uh, here that a lot of people have been running into is because of the limited scope of the statute. If you're, say, for example, unwinding a holding company, so and you might do this for pillar two reasons, perhaps, like if, if there's an IAR that would otherwise apply and it might be better off to hold CFCs as first tier, you might liquidate your holding company. Well, what just happened to your basis? And I think a lot of people were very worried that you didn't have any basis, right? Because again, you've got this limited scope for 961C. It's just for purposes of subpart F. And um, so you might be subject to double tax, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what the notice- When you sell or otherwise distribute that if you don't have basis. Exactly. So notice helpfully comes in and says, we're actually going to give you basis credit in some very limited circumstances where you have a non-recognition transaction that causes that second tier CFC to become first tier. Um, so it was welcome. Like I, I think a lot of people had actually approached the IRS about PLRs in this space and you'd seen kind of different arguments from advisors on this. So it's nice to have guidance you can point to with a clear answer um, that allows for a very sane uh, appropriate answer in most circumstances. Yeah, and it only applies to covered inbound transactions, and they have kind of a very detailed definition. But can you kind of summarize and, and any traps as, as companies? Because I think, you know, one of the trends I'm certainly seeing is that companies with historic holding company, particularly U.S. multinationals, but it's not certainly unique to U.S. multinationals, um, given all the compliance and other you know, reasons with Pillar 2 and just additional costs and, and complexities are looking to eliminate holding companies, for example, and this issue can come up. So for those companies that are looking to eliminate, liquidate holding companies that are just really no longer fit for purpose, what is a, a covered inbound transaction? Yeah, so we really have two paradigms. One is um, the liquidation of a wholly owned 
holding company, CFC, right? So that's one type of covered inbound transaction. So the idea is you own all of the top tier CFC and it owns all of the lower tier CFC and you liquidate that company. That would typically not be non-taxable under section 332. That's one type of covered inbound transaction. The other type is an inbound reorganization. So, you know, for example, you might do an F reorganization to convert your top tier CFC from a foreign corporation to a domestic corporation. That's another type. Now, um, there are lots of restrictions on your ability to get relief and little technical footfalls. That is, we're starting to look at client facts. We're realizing, oh, this doesn't actually cover you because of this small technical mm. footfall. I don't want to you know, point fingers at the government here. I think they were trying to get relief out as quickly as possible. And I don't think they felt comfortable with broad guidance. So there are a lot of guardrails. So for example, if you would have a loss in your CFC stock as a result of the inbound transaction, you're not eligible for relief. What does that mean? Well, the notice says you know, there's no inference on how 961C or just these provisions are otherwise supposed to apply. So um, that suggests that maybe there's some ambiguity or room to take positions, that there is some basis credit. But I think, at least under the notice, there is literally no relief. There's also an issue where um, if you sell the stock or transfer the stock to a foreign corporation or partnership within two years, you cannot get the relief either. That's an interesting one because one thing we're running into is if I'm planning to sell to a third party who just happens to be a foreign corporation that is covered by this exception and, and it, it feels a little odd that, you know, what's the point of this notice if I can't use the basis within two years? Right. Um, you know, another technical issue that we're hoping gets addressed, it would be nice if it were a little bit clearer that the basis that you bring inbound gets disregarded when you're doing your apportionment for interest expense purposes. Mm -hmm. That's not crystal clear. I think people are taking positions. So I think there's a lot to comment on here. I think the deadline is um, coming up next month. And so people should try to do that uh, to the extent they're impacted by or, or not covered by the notice and think they should be. Yeah, great point. And to remind listeners that our administrative process here in the US, whenever there's a notice, allows frankly, any stakeholders, taxpayers, advisors, whatever, to, to potentially provide comments. And so would certainly recommend people get involved in the process and, and provide comments. And I would add on to that for our foreign listeners, particularly at the OECD, that I think it's a really helpful feature of our system that you can provide input before guidance gets finalized. Amen. <laughs> so, Amen. But, but you know, the one other thing, just to, to mention to the taxpayers, we may be living with this notice for a while, you know, there's the whole saga of the PTEP regulations that have been long coming. You know, it's, I think we're now year six of, of waiting on those regulations. This notice is, I don't think, going to be finalized with the forthcoming PTEP regulations that we were hearing about. Which we've been hearing about for some time. Yeah, so it may be a while before they get around to turning this notice into proposed regulations. Okay. All right, so let's move on to our last topic, which is the U.S. Corporate Alternative Minimum Tax formerly known as the book minimum tax, not to be confused with the pillar two minimum tax, Wade. So before we dive in, can you remind listeners what is the corporate alternative minimum tax or the Camp T, which I think it's now known by? Yeah. So this is a tax that is, for the most part, based on book income. Um, there's this concept, applicable financial statement income. 
that's more or less uh, the income that's on your consolidated financial statements with several adjustments, you know, sometimes using tax numbers instead of book and so forth. And it's generally supposed to only apply to large corporations that are referred to as applicable corporations. Uh, so for most U.S. multinationals, that applies if over a certain average period you have AFSI over a billion dollars. And that's generally profit, so it's not just top-line revenue. Right. Uh, and then for foreign multinationals, there's a second test where the foreign multinational group has to meet the billion-dollar test, but then your U.S.-only operations have to be in excess of $100 million. Again, profit, not revenue. Right. And, and so you pay the tax. Uh, it's a 15% tax on your AFSI if that exceeds your regular tax liability plus beat, less certain credits. And if you do pay the tax, you get a credit that carries forward indefinitely. And so for a lot of taxpayers, you know, this is maybe not a book impact, right? Because you should be able to get a deferred tax asset for the Campty credit, mm -hmm. uh, but it is a cash tax drag. And then, you know, as you've noted, I think, on an earlier podcast, there's a question about how all of this interacts with Pillar 2. Uh, because there's some concern that that credit for Campty, when you use it later, could be clawed back as a non-refundable tax credit uh, under Pillar 2. Yeah, and I think I've been maybe even a little bit more affirmative on that potential risk, Wade. I'm, I, I share your optimism, but I think the concern is, is that this is not a refundable tax credit under the Pillar 2 rules. It's not transferable. So particularly for those large non-U.S. companies that are investing into the U.S., if they end up in the Camp T, let's say in 2024, and the jurisdiction has an IR jurisdiction, um, they could potentially pay the Camp T, and then let's say in 2025, they're no longer in the Camp T, and they're using they're in this the regular U.S. federal income tax. They can use that Camp T to credit to reduce the taxable income in that future year. But if that's not considered a good refundable tax credit, then effectively they may just end up paying that credit back to whoever the, the parent jurisdiction is that's applying an IAR. So something for particularly inbound companies, and this will be more you know, relevant you know, once the UTPR applies for U.S. parented groups, but certainly something to, to, to keep an eye on. Yeah. So we had a couple of notices, Wade, that came out, one in September and then one at the end of the year related to Camp T because the, the original statutory language is pretty vague. I mean, it doesn't provide yeah. a lot because this is very technical and a lot of operational issues. And Really want to try to stay at a high level for this, but the notice 2023-64 came out in September 2023. What did that cover kind of in general and maybe what's relevant for some cross-border transactions? Yeah, I think in general what that notice was about is the basic building blocks of determining your AFSI, right? So it told you what an applicable financial statement was, what financial statement income was, um, how to deal with issues like you know, intercompany transactions within a, tax, uh, excuse me, a financial consolidation. For U.S. GAAP, we typically disregard those items, but, but this notice told us, no, you eliminate, you disregard the elimination entries, right, and you respect those intercompany transactions. So a lot of it's just basic blocking and tackling, dealing with scoping and, and determining your tax liability. Um, what's interesting to the, to the international folks? A few things. Um, told us a lot about how to deal with Campty foreign tax credits. And you know, one of the interesting features of the Campty foreign tax credit is it has two accrual standards, more or less, uh, for determining when you take into account a tax. One is when it's paid or accrued for 901 purposes. That one we tax people are very familiar with. Mm -hmm. 
The other is when, it's when the tax is taken into account on the applicable financial statement. And that one is a mystery because it's not a tax term and we've learned since that it's not a, a book term either, right? So it's uh, sort of an unknown what that was intended to refer to. And what the notice basically says is, hey, don't worry about it. As long as it's somewhere in a journal entry, that counts, right? And so effectively what they've done here is given primacy to the regular tax 901 accrual rules for purposes of CAMPTI. Um, the downside of that potentially is you might have some taxes that accrued before CAMPTI was in effect that you're now carrying forward. Um, you cannot claim those as credits into CAMPTI, so there is a cutoff. Um, another issue, there was a pretty hard issue about partnerships. You know, you can imagine you have a hybrid partnership that pays for an income tax, and it's owned by a CFC. And there was a hard question about, well, can my CFC claim CAMPTI credits for the taxes that are on the financial statements of the partnership and are technically paid or accrued there? Mm -hmm. I think the government got to the right answer and said yes. And, um, you know, there's some tweaks around ECI, right? So for a foreign corporation, you only have AFSI to the extent of your effectively connected income. It's, you know, generally U.S. trade or business income. Mm -hmm. And what they told us there is uh, two things. One is... You get to use treaties to determine the scope of that income. And secondly, if you have a CFC that has this effectively connected income, you don't pick that up in the pro rata share rule, which I think we're going to talk about in a little bit. So you don't end up double or triple counting that income. Right. And I mean, this is a whole separate set of books and separate calculations. So you've got, you know, taxpayers have to deal obviously with their local corporate income tax. They're going to have their local stat books, their U.S. gap books, for example. Now a whole separate set of pillar two books that are needed. The CAMT and particularly this notice really starts to give the guidance and you can really see how it's differentiated from pillar two. So for, again, it's intended to apply just to those really large multinationals and there doesn't seem to be a lot of sympathy for those large U.S. multinationals, just given the compliance requirements and the complexities associated with this, but something certainly for taxpayers to be mindful of. So um, maybe we move on to notice 2024-10, and mm -hmm. there was a big question, and we've covered it on prior podcasts, but with respect to how do distributions work when there's distributions um, from CFC or between CFCs? And just again, stepping back to, to remind listeners that the KMT really provide is, is calculated on a full consolidated basis. So it's not just the U.S., it's also all the foreign subs, and they're all kind of aggregated, so to speak, which is another one of the really big differences from the Pillar 2 rules. But what was the concern from Notice 2024-10? And it got all, has gotten a lot yeah, of press yeah. on this issue. But maybe remind, what was the issue, and then how did the notice attempt to solve that? So, right, this, this was probably, in my opinion, the biggest international tax issue with CAMPTI. Yeah, and and the concern was potentially double counting of the same income in the CAMPTI tax base in AFSI. And, and that happened because there were two separate rules that argue applied to a single CFC's earnings. So there's one rule that taxes a U.S. shareholder on its pro rata share of the net income of the CFC, right? It's basically a pass-through, flow-through yep. rule. Um, and then there's a second rule that says if you receive a dividend from a corporation that is not a member of your consolidated group, then you include the dividend in your, uh, in your AFSI too. So the concern people had was basically, I might get taxed once or, or have AFSI from the earnings in the CFC itself, 
And then once those earnings are distributed, I might have additional AFSI from the distribution. I think the term for that is double counting. Right, yeah. And, and you know, there are a lot of arguments about, oh, well, what if it's PTEP? That's not really a dividend. And, you know, that we were all going through that exercise, but thankfully that's done because the notice has given us a very clear rule to follow, which is basically you disregard any book items resulting from the distribution and you more or less um, get to take into account your PTEP exclusions. If you have a distribution to a U.S. shareholder that's eligible for 245 cap A, you get to take that into account. And the effect, more or less, is that you don't count the dividends when they're distributed to the U.S. shareholder or even to a CFC, so they don't end up double counting, with some exceptions we'll get into. Um, but you know, I think this is really welcome relief to folks. Agreed. And, and what are let's what are those exceptions and, and issues that <clears throat> taxpayers need to be aware of? Yeah. So so this one is really subtle, but you know, when you're talking about the rule for a CFC distribution to a U.S. shareholder, it tells you that you take into account the income from the distribution, tax income, and deductions attributable to the income. And so what that tells me is that if I'm distributing earnings that are eligible for 245 cap A, which is our participation exemption, then I take into account the gross income from the dividend, but there's an offsetting deduction. And so I net to zero. So there's no CAMPTI impact from the distribution. Um, when you get to the rule for CFCs, it says something a little different. It says you just take into account the income. It omits the word deduction. And that, to me, creates a pretty strong inference that people at the government don't think CFCs can claim a 245 cap A deduction. And so that raises this concern that, you know, you might have an entity that's not eligible for a look-through, right? Because maybe it's a CFC, but it's not related to you. Mm -hmm. And it may pay distributions to a CFC holding company. I think based on the notice, that dividend gets included in AFSI. So that's one concern. I think the bigger concern for a lot of taxpayers is, does that mean that I'm also not able to claim a DRD at the CFC level? That's been an old debate oh, since yeah. TCJA. You know, there's the famous footnote in the legislative history. Um, I don't know that we're going to get an answer to that anytime soon, but the government is sort of nudging in little places, discrete areas to, to indicate that they believe you can't. Well, what, and what's not in that? I mean, so they covered the, these these uh, covered CFC distributions. Anything to, to point out? I mean, there's frankly a lot that's not in there. Yeah, but any, yeah. Anything to, to, to point out? And I'm particularly thinking maybe about like some of the purchase price adjustments, for example. Yeah, so that's a good one. It's not necessarily limited to the international area. But one issue that's been flagged in a lot of comment letters is, you know, when you make an acquisition of a target company, you typically make a purchase price adjustment. You can push that down to subsidiaries as well. And so for book purposes, even if you don't make a 338 election, you, you typically have fair market value uh, book basis in all of your assets. And that makes sense because financial accounting is trying to measure the performance of the asset in your hands, right? right. It's, it doesn't care about accrued gain in someone else's hands. I think there's some talk or concern that that feels like a windfall because you might have acquired this target and gotten a step up in assets without anyone paying CAMPTI or having an AFSI inclusion to get that step up. So it feels like it's inconsistent with general utilities repeal, that we should tax all corporate gains. I don't know where that lands. I think we'll find out the answer from whatever CAMPTI guidance is supposed to come out in the next month or two. And, you know, from the one perspective, I'd say, listen, this is just meant to be a tax on book earnings. And so you should play the ball where it lies 
you don't need to turn it into an alternative tax system. Right. Um, we'll see where that goes. I mean, you, you've done a lot of the modeling in Campti. It is already inordinately complex. Wow. Um, and so the more bells and whistles you add to it, the worse it gets. Right. Yeah. And there's still just a lot of guidance that, that is, will, will be hopefully be coming out because just a lot of questions given just the general nature of the statute. And so stay tuned for that. Maybe just the final question. So we're expecting more Camp T guidance. Um, what else has Treasury said publicly that we should or could be expecting here as we look at uh, the future of 2024? Sure. So, so the big ticket near-term items, PTEP, we are told, is right around the corner. More PTEP recs. Um, so just stay tuned for that. And I think that'll answer a lot of questions about you know, tracking of accounts and how you should treat 961C basis. Um, cloud computing. There were regulations proposed on the characterization of those tra transactions back in 2019. Those should be finalized pretty soon here. And we're also hearing that there's going to be a, a package dealing with sourcing of cloud transactions. And that is really interesting because there are really no rules in that space. And this could be potentially a game changer for a lot of companies. Um, there should be some new guidance coming out on domestically controlled REITs. The, there was a PFIC project dealing with the aggregate treatment of partnerships. That's now been revived, so that could come out uh, soon this year. And then longer term, we're not done in the foreign tax credit space. Doesn't uh, seem like it. I think, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of taxpayers think we're good here. Like, <sighs> just stop while you're ahead. <laughs> like, this is a reasonable set of rules that we can apply, and, and we'll just agree to that. But the government's been pretty forward-leaning about the fact that, no, we are not stopping. This is not... Um, going back to the old rules forever. We're going to rethink the project and come out with new proposed rules. When those developments occur, you'll hear about them on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Wade, thank you very much for coming, as always, uh, outstanding overview of what's taken place in the U.S. and what we have to look forward to. Thanks for having me. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Wade Sutton, PwC's Washington National Tax Services International Tax Leader, for joining I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.